Derek Jensen is an author and environmentalist. His most recent book is Bright Green Lies, How the Environmental Movement Lost Its Way and What We Can Do About It. This is Derek Jensen. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with Derek Jensen. Uh, sir, thank you for uh, joining me once again. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so you have written and put out this book recently called Bright Green Lies, um, which is about the environmental movement. And, and the title is something that, I mean, when, when I, I looked this up on Amazon, I don't know if this was like a, a failure of their algorithm, but they had uh, as like another suggested book by it, like uh, Socialists Don't Sleep, Christians Must Rise or America Will Fall. And <laughs> because... It bright green lies sounds like um, to someone who doesn't know you or what you're about. It sounds like oh, this is some right wing attack on the environmental movement, but that's not what it is at all. Um, so by why? The way, what's which, that? By the way, which, by the way, I got my first uh, nasty note about it a couple of days ago, which was precisely that: is somebody who hadn't read the book uh, saying, "Who's funding you?" Yeah. Um, and basically which are the really funny thing about this is the person who, who wrote that actually is on the board of an organization promoting solar mm. right? yeah you're accusing me of supporting a sector of industrial capitalism when that's what you're doing anyway sorry go ahead no fair enough um i i guess my question then is so why why write this book um it's a because, problem because the, because the world's getting killed right. and uh, something dreadful has happened to the environmental movement. Um, and uh, we are collectively wasting time we don't have on solutions that not only harm the planet, but they also won't even accomplish their stated goal of maintaining civilization. And mm -hmm. I'll, I'll unpack a little bit of that. Um, at one point, the environmental movement was about protecting wild places and wild beings. You know, Rachel Carson wrote uh, Silent Spring and she wrote about the ocean and she did that because she loved wild nature. She loved the birds, she loved flowers, she loved um, the, the oceans, the life around us. And somewhere along the way, really kicking the gear 30, 35 years ago, from 30 years ago to, to 20 years ago to 10 years ago, um, a lot of environmentalism switched from being about wild nature to being about maintaining this way of life. Mm -hmm. And so you can have famous and influential environmentalists like um, um, Lester Brown who comes up with, you know, plan B 4.0 to save civilization. He's not saying plan B 4.0 to save grizzly bears, to save polar bears, to save frogs, to save the oceans. And you have Bill McKibben saying explicitly just time and again that he, he, his work, he says, we're losing this fight badly in great measure because we are ignorant of what's at stake here, which is civilization. And as we say in the book, I'll bet polar bears and walruses and glaciers would wish that sentence would have ended differently. Right. And, you know, I had an exchange with Bill McKibben. I, I, I want to be really clear. 
but you know, I, I just mentioned that that woman who wrote to me, who's paying you? And I mean, she's clearly questioning my integrity. And I'm not questioning Bill McKibben's integrity. Everything I've ever heard about him, he is he has worked selflessly and tirelessly to raise awareness on global warming. I don't know anybody who has done more to raise awareness on global warming than he has. And he wrote to me maybe, I don't know, seven, eight years ago and said, you know, I've heard you've been saying bad things about me behind my back. And I would hope that if you have a problem with me, you would come to me directly, which is great. I mean, that's, that's, that's way healthier than, you know, going to Facebook and saying, you know, doing a vague book about how somebody's mean to me or something. I wrote back to him and I said, no, I have, I have great respect for how hard you're working. My problem with you, and I've said this before privately and I've said it publicly and I'll say it to your face. My problem is you keep talking about saving civilization as opposed to saving birds and bats and saving wild nature. And so we have a difference in value, basically. Yeah. Um, and then... He, he wrote back nicely and we basically just agreed at some point we have to take a walk and, and talk this through. That's where it's stood for years. And then I released this book. Uh, <laughs> and um, another great line from the book is uh, Naomi Klein in this changes everything. The movie, she says it in book two, she says, you know, she's been to more, more climate marches than she can count. But, you know, even after all this time, polar bears just don't do it for her. And she's realized it's really all about us. That's the problem. The problem is that we have invisibilized, even in the environmental movement, you expect capitalists to do this. You expect for people who run mines to invisibilize the natural world. You expect loggers to invisibilize the forest because all they care about is how much they can take from the forest. You don't expect environmentalists to invisibilize the victims of this way of life. So they're solving for the wrong variable. You know, something I've been saying for 15, 20 years is what do all of the so-called solutions to global warming that you hear about in the mainstream press, what do they all have in common? And what they all have in common is they take industrial capitalism as a given and the natural world is having to conform to industrial capitalism and that is literally insane in terms of being out of touch with physical reality because <clears throat> excuse me because the natural world must be primary because any economic system you have any economic system whatsoever is based on the natural world the planet is the source of all life and we forget that and we think that this way of living is the source of all life. And it's, it's understandable that we come to think that because, you know, we can look around like right now you can see, wait, where it is. There we go. Right now there's a little lamp and there's a wood railing. And then behind you, there's a picture and then there's a wall, you know, everything around us was created by this culture and we are surrounded by you know, I wrote a book, Welcome to the Machine, back in 2004 or three or five or something. And <clears throat> in there, we talk a little bit about, uh, that was me and George Draft and not the royal we. Um, <laughs> we, we talk about uh, um, um, transhumanists 
people who believe that we're going to integrate ourselves into machines. And what George and I say in that book is we've already done it because if you look around, you know, how many machines are within 20 feet of you right now and how many wild animals are within a hundred yards of you and how many machines do you have a daily relationship with versus how many wild animals or wild plants do you have a relationship with every day? Right. Well, can, so, can ask- if you're better than that, you can come to believe that that's all that matters and that's the mistake they've made. So can I ask on that point, because I definitely want to get into the transhumanism and the technocrats who you talk about in the book. Um, at what point um, do these machines become, you know, quote unquote, unnatural? Because after all, like a bird's nest, you could argue is a form of technology. I mean, it didn't exist before the bird created it, right? Um, at what point when we have, you know, hummers and robots and so on, do we say, okay, this is no longer the natural world? Oh, that's a great question. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, and this is not my answer, but it's, it's a joke that somebody told me once that they saw in a cartoon, and it's always struck me as funny, which is, it's some robots who have advanced AI who are, you know, ripping apart the last humans and uh, one of the ways the robots taunt the humans is we had you at the toaster. <laughs> and, um, again, that's not, that's a joke. That's not my answer. Of course. Um, my answer is, has to do with um, Lewis Mumford. And it takes us right into democratic and authoritarian techniques. Did we talk about those before? No. Okay, good. Um, so, Mumford talked about, Lewis Mumford, I think, is one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century, and I think the most important philosopher of technology. And he's very interesting, too, because he, he had the courage to change his mind in public. He wrote pro-technology stuff in the 1930s, and then World War II convinced him that he had been wrong. And he had several books out, and then he just, he did a public about-face, and you know, I hate the fact that in modern political language, they call that flip-flopping and say it's bad. Right. I say, no, that's called learning. And I mean, I've written some things before that when I look at them now, it's like, oh my God, that was so embarrassing. You know, I was, I was so young, yeah. <laughs> not to patronize myself, but, you know, and, and so he changed his mind and he, he became a very strong critic of, of high technology. So he defined a, okay, technologies don't emerge from a vacuum. It's not that the people who used to live, and they still live here, that it's not that the traditional Talawa on whose land I live, it's not that they were too stupid to invent backhoes. They didn't invent them because their social structures didn't give rise to the need, or they didn't invent refrigeration because fish stay a lot fresher in the rivers. There was no need for have refrigeration for them. Um, there's, I mean, literally, if you wanted to go get something to eat, I could walk down 40 feet that way, or no, 40 yards that way, there's a river. I go grab a salmon, come home, and we got, we got dinner. And if you live like that, there's no reason for refrigeration. So the point is that he called something a technic, T-E-C-H-N-I-C. What that is is the combination of social structure and technology that are in a suite. And so he said that there are some technics 
that are democratic and some that are authoritarian. And it's pretty simple. If it arises from and gives rise to an authoritarian power structure, then it will be what he called authoritarian. And if it arises from and gives rise to democratic power structures, it will be what he called a democratic technique. And I know that sounds complicated, but a couple of examples make it clear. Sure. Basket weaving would be a, an, a democratic technique because nobody can control your access to reeds or grass. Mm -hmm. And you don't need a system of police and the military in order to weave baskets. You can be better at it or worse at it. You know, you could be excellent at it and I'm terrible at it, which means your baskets are going to work better, but you can't create a monopoly on basket weaving. Sure. I can just walk out there and grab some reeds um, and, or sedges. And on the other hand, if you have mining, for example, has been such a horrible way of living that the only way to get people to go into mines is to is enslave them. It was one of the first forms of slavery. And so that requires a democratic, I'm sorry, authoritarian power structure. And likewise, once you get the ore, people can steal it, which means it requires a military. And there's a great example of this. I was doing an interview. Somebody was interviewing me, I don't know, six or seven years ago. And it was so fun. The guy, terrible interview. The guy was, uh, was for Nature Online. And he was a dedicated Marxist who believed that you could have a, um, a system of purely voluntary exchanges where no one was ever exploited and you could still have an industrial system. Right. And you could still have a city. Did I already tell you the story? I, I, think, I think you did, but go ahead because it, okay. it, it is instructive. Um, so, so I said, great. How do you get around your city? He said, buses. I said, great. Uh, what are the buses made of? He said, metal. I said, great. How do you get, get the metal? He said, mines. I said, great. Uh, who works in the mines? How do you get people to work in the mines? And he said, well, you pay them a lot. And you know, we had the discussion about slavery, but then I gave him that one. And I said, what about the fact that every single hard rock mine in the world pollutes groundwater? So what about the people who live next to the river? We'll just ignore the non-humans because he didn't care about them. I said, what about the people who live next to the river? He said, well, you pay them to move. I said, what well, if they, they, they won't move? They refuse. So we pay them more. I said, well, what if they've lived there for 5,000 years and their ancestors are buried there and they refuse to leave? He said, well, how many are there? I said, I don't know, 500. What difference does it make? He said, well, the million people in the city vote and they vote that those 500 people have to leave yeah. and then you kick them off. And I said, okay, so you've gone from purely voluntary exchanges to democratic empire, land theft from indigenous people and probably genocide all within less than a minute so you can have a bus. And the point is that that technology requires that social structure. Mm. So he called it an authoritarian technique in part because the technology would require the entire system. So if you're going to have a solar panel, that means you have to have the mines in order to make the solar panel. Right. which means you have to have a military in order to take the land because nobody wants a mine on their land. Yeah. So you have to have the military to take the land from people. You have to have a police force to, in, to, to force the people not to come back. You have to have a police force to force people in the mines. 
you have to have a police force to make sure nobody steals the ore because we all know what happens in failed states to all the electricity. It gets taken down. I mean, all the, the wiring gets taken down to be recycled. Mm. Uh, point being that you need the entire people will say, gosh, abolish the police. And so you, you can't abolish the police when you have a system that's, that's based on the only way you could abolish the police is if you had private mercenary forces, because somebody has to protect all of, you know, I don't know, Exxon Mobil's equipment. And, right. and so it requires that. Another quick example is that um, bows and arrows are uh, democratic. It's not the fact that bows and arrows are used to kill. That's not what makes it democratic or authoritarian. It's that I could go grab a piece of wood and I could take a gut from a dead animal to make a string or make a string. I don't know what you're making out of. You make it out of something. And I can make a string and I can, I can make a bow and arrow. It'd be a really crappy one, but I can make one. On the other hand, if I have a gun and I don't have access to bullets or gunpowder, I basically just have a club. And so it requires those social structures to, mm -hmm. to make them. And then he also said it's authoritarian for another reason, which is that the technology itself is in charge. And I know that sounds crazy and science fiction-y, but think about it. Are cities made primarily for humans or for cars? Right. And they're actually running, a corporation is the best example. A corporation is a legal fiction. It doesn't exist. It's, a, it's, a, it's an invention. And it is, according to Lewis Mumford, a machine. And he, he defined the first, mega, it's a mega machine, according to him. The first mega machines, you have to back up. According to Mumford, and I agree with this, the most important or one of the most important inventions humans have ever created, it's not, I don't think it's the wheel. I don't think it's the screw. I don't think it's the lever. I think the most important invention that the humans have created is what he called the mega machine, which is the top-down military-style bureaucratic organizational schema where you have, so have you participated in many small group organizations like 10 people in an environmental organization or 10 people in a... Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so how long did it take for this group to end up having incredible drama and counterproductive personal squabbling? I, I, I was lucky with a couple of them that did not have a lot of drama but there was definitely cases of that like um if you're familiar with like usas that we had like a local usas like students against sweatshops or whatever uh at college and when we went to like the national meeting um we had like a really good chapter where we tried to like eliminate drama as much as possible the national meeting though there was a lot of that going on and it was it, it devolved very quickly it was unproductive and uh, my favorite example of that is from like the third century, what's it, we're supposed to call it current era, I guess, third century AD, whatever you want to say. Yeah. Uh, early Christians, fourth, fifth century, somewhere in there. Uh, it was the Homoousians and the Homoousians. Uh, they're both Christians, S-E-C-T-S, and they uh, have, the difference is one has no, one doesn't. And uh, they were killing each other in the streets over the distinction of whether God is three in one or one who happens to be three. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, 
this is I was I was talking to a friend of mine from West Virginia a few years ago because I know the left does this all the time. And I said, does the right just as bad? And he started laughing. He said, in the town where he lives, there used to be a KKK chapter that consisted of three brothers. And within a couple of years, the town had three KKK chapters, each one consisting of one brother. (laughs) (laughs) And so my point is that I don't think humans, people will sometimes say, oh, humans are a plague species. Humans are fundamentally evil. I don't think we're fundamentally evil. I do think, however, we are fundamentally contentious and we, we snip at each other. And I think and bats do the same thing. It's pretty funny. I know we're getting way off topic. No, no, there's no off topic here. Maybe, uh, we, should, maybe we should schedule another one to actually talk about the book. Yeah. Anyway, um, bats, they did a study a while ago where they put a video on them and recorded the sounds they made and then correlated it with actions to try to come up with a lexicon. Right. So if I was poking you in the arm and then you say something and then I stop poking you in the arm, they might figure out that what you said was don't poke me in the arm. Anyway, what they, what they found was that most of what the bats were saying to each other is, hey, cut it out. Get away from me. Yeah. Don't, don't sit so close to me. Don't. And so the point is, I think, I think most of what songbirds do is go, ah, did you see what they were doing yesterday? Oh, I can't believe it. You know, they, they gossip, I think. And I think, I think, anyway, the point is, it's an extraordinary accomplishment to get millions of people in an army who are all working together to invade Russia or to invade France or invade Germany or whatever you're going to invade. Yeah. Or it's just as extraordinary to get a million people all working together to make Coca-Cola and distribute it around the country. Yeah. That, top-down military style so that is a machine that okay i'm almost done um so we're we're those machines my point about that is that corporations are a mega machine and they i used to ask people at talks all the time do you believe that the government takes better care of corporations or human beings and people would laugh and they would say, of course, it takes better care of corporations. Why? Well, it's a stupid question. Yeah. And so that's an example of it being an authoritarian technic. It is in charge. Mm. Or like people talk, global warming is killing the planet. What are we going to do? It's like, we can even stop the oil industry. And so the point is that these, the system is in charge. It's not human beings. This system does not serve humans. Yeah. It doesn't serve non-humans. It is actually in charge. It's an authoritarian technique. And the reason that we don't destroy it is because we have access to ice cream 24-7. We got Wi-Fi. We got... Uh, Mumford called this a magnificent bribe. And this is back in the 1960s that we have power greater than the pharaohs of Egypt. Yes. We have yeah. access to and we're all being we in the industrialized nations are all being bought off we have access to i mean right now i could uh, within 30 seconds i could look up and tell you who all of the supporting cast was for the movie cool hand luke you know yeah. we have access to, to to greater access than people had it at the biggest libraries ever in many ways yeah um in a climate controlled room um and 
there was a study, I don't know if we mentioned this before, but there was a study done in the UK a few years ago. They asked a bunch of students, a bunch of, I'm sorry, young people, 18 to 25, if they thought that, uh, which was more important to them, sunlight or Wi-Fi? And overwhelmingly it was Wi-Fi. And that's, that's, that's in charge. So I think one of the places where it became machines, I would make the distinction between a natural creation and an unnatural creation, you know, putting quotes on those words, because I don't know what to do with them. Right. Uh, I would put it, the difference between democratic and authoritarian techniques, mm-hmm. or uh, we could also, I could, we could probably make an argument that the mega machine was the, the first really unnatural. And basically what the mega machine is, to, to another way to put it, is it's humans used as cogs in a machine and they're replaceable. So this, you know, when I was younger, it used to make me really sad when I would see an old person working at McDonald's. And I thought about this because it never made me sad when I saw an old farmer. And then I realized that the difference was that the old person working at Walmart or McDonald's or wherever is, is replaceable there. And the old farmer, you know, I may have some disagreements with people in farming but the fact is that that farmer, male or female, has probably gained a lot of experience over those 50 years of farming and is not replaceable except through a long apprenticeship. And so it just strikes me as struck me as sad that you could have somebody at 60 years old who could be replaced by a teenager. Yeah, it is sad. And the interest, one of the interesting points you, you made there um, about the fact that cities are not really as much designed for people as they are for automobiles. That's something that um, I, I, this is not nearly as like a, a <laughs> positive of, of a person to decide as Lewis Mumford, but Ted Kaczynski in his manifesto was talking about how when cars were initially invented, it was supposed to make people more free. You know, you can go anywhere you want. Um, and then over time, as it became cemented into the society, you, you, suddenly, if you were in a city, you had to stop at a traffic light um, as a pedestrian. So you couldn't, it, that, and that is, whatever you think of it, it's definitely a constriction on your freedom because you can't move as easily. Um, is, that, is that part of, I mean, I guess that, that would sort of play into what you're saying is you're not necessarily against technology per se like basket weaving or bow and arrow but when it becomes a part of some social system that constricts freedom or hurts people well and also what is its effect on the natural world okay yeah and um you know i really like i'm basically something is good when it you know i want to get the exact quote by aldo leopold um which we use as a, as a, I can't believe, I'm embarrassed that I have to look this up. No worries. Uh, I just want to make sure I get it right because it's such an important quote. I don't want to have one word wrong. See, I could, I could tell you almost what it is. I promise. I promise. Yeah. No, I believe you. Uh, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, a thing is right when it tends to preserve the integrity, stability, and beauty of the biotic community. It is wrong when it tends otherwise. Yeah. And so, I would use that as that. That's one of my guides to 
whether a technology is. Well, there we go. Okay, I'm gonna say, we can, instead of saying natural or unnatural, I'm going to say adaptive or, or maladaptive in the long term, because we, a lot of people misunderstand evolution, I believe, that they believe that evolution is based on who can uh, destroy everybody else and who can exploit the most. It's basically capitalism projected on the natural world. And there is truth that if there is only a certain amount of food and it's not enough for two bears to survive, then the stronger one will get the food and survive. I'm not saying that's not true. What I'm also saying, what I'm saying though, is that there is another part of it, which is the creatures who survive in the long run, survive in the long run. And the only way you survive in the long run is by improving your habitat. You don't survive in the long run by harming your habitat. Think about it. If your habitat is at 100 units of goodness, sure. and then after, after every generation, you reduce it down by one unit, that's fine for the first 50 generations. It's fine for the first 75, but after 99 generations, you've reduced it down to one. And then the next generation, you've reduced to zero. So you've exceeded carrying capacity. Yeah. And so... If you, if you look at salmon, salmon actually improve the health of the forest and the forest improves the health of the salmon. So long-term adaptivity to, I would judge a technology as to whether it is adaptive in the long run. You know, I've, something I've been fighting for 30 years is the same thing really. There are people who have argued for a long time that, you know, because Indians affect their land base or because termites affect their land base, it doesn't matter, because creature A affects its land base, therefore, anything we do is natural and anything we do is... Like, I've actually seen people, and I've rebutted them in public, who have said, because indigenous people affected their land base, therefore, Boise Cascade Timber Company clear-cutting is fine. Right. And... There's a really good answer that I got from the historian Ray Raphael, which is, yes, they affected their land base, but they made their land use decisions. Their, their land use decisions were predicated on whether they were planning on being in place in the next 500 years. And if you're planning on living in place for the next 500 years, your land use decisions will be different. Right. And if you're planning on living in place for the next 500 years, your technologies you develop will be different. Because if you're planning on living in place for 500 years, you're not going to invent cars that are going to change the climate. I mean, you, you got to be really stupid to do that. And, you know, we, I don't know if we talked about this before, but a lot of my environmentalism really emerges from a fundamental conservatism. And what I mean by that is I just think it's really stupid to wipe out, to reduce one's future options, for example, by wiping out salmon that you might want to eat tomorrow. Mm -hmm. I just think that's a terrible idea. And so I think it's a really bad idea to have a blowout part. It's the same with money. You know, all those people, I don't remember. I saw the number. Okay, two two numbers. One is like 40, 50, 60% or something of NFL players are bankrupt within five years of their career ending. Yeah. Or I've seen things on people who win the lottery. Almost always it's um, 
they're they're busted within five years. Yeah. And I I am my mother's son who and she grew up she was born in 1933 so she grew up in the depression so it's like I learned from my mom you don't do that I don't like spending down capital and it's the same environmentally I hate when people call it natural capital but that doesn't alter the fact that I hate when I just think it's ridiculous to make it so there are fewer salmon every year when you might want to eat them yes they deserve to live on their own right oh so I would say that the distinction for me is any technology that can be used, any technology that would make one's land base um, more, one's biotic community have greater stability and integrity and strength in 500 years, that would be a technology that I think is adaptive. I see. Um, well, one of the things like on, on that point that I kind of wanted to ask you about is I had talked to, um, cause we're talking a lot about like human supremacy and these kinds of things and the natural world. But I talked to Wade Davis recently. Um, he's, you know, an anthropologist and has talked about how something like half of all languages being spoken today are being spoken by like the last person who's ever going to use them. And in some ways, um, I feel like what the environmental mainstream environmental movement is trying to do when they say, yeah, the polar bears aren't doing it for me is they're trying to tap into, you know, Hey, like, um, yeah, I, I don't know, sort of walking in backwards, trying to save the natural world by saying, you know, Hey, this is really what's best for humans in the long run. Um, on that same note of, you know, globalization being bad for the natural world, but also reducing the biodiversity of humans. Um, do you, do you see that as being um, almost like a propaganda technique or do you think that people in the environmental movement truly don't, when they say the polar bears aren't doing it for me, um, truly don't care about uh, biodiversity besides human beings? Well, before we go on, I want to just say that I, I am completely horrified by the loss of languages too. That horrifies me. I don't know if I'm going to say just as much, either just as much as almost as much, one of those two as, as the other. I, I hate, hate is not too strong a word. Television's effect on the reduction of accents. I love, love, love accents and regional dialects. I just like, I love hearing somebody from Tennessee speak and then somebody from um, Wisconsin speak and somebody from Massachusetts speak. I just, I love that. Um, And I hate the fact that those, those edges are being worn away and that's not even language. That's just dialect or accent. And so, yes, I I just wanted to, to put that in. And then the other I also want to make a distinction here between grassroots environmentalists and mainstream environmentalists that <laughs> so many grassroots environmentalists are absolutely positively biocentric and ecocentric at their core. And so if I condemn, for example, the Sierra club or Audubon, I need to make a distinction between 
the local grassroots chapters and the national office. Because a lot of the, the locals, there can be real conflicts between them. And having said that, I've thought, are they being really, are they being sneaky and propagandistic and thinking, gosh, we, in order to speak about this publicly, we have to, uh, we have to lie and say we don't care about the polar bears. And a couple things. One of them is, I think they actually do believe it. I think they actually do prefer this way of life over the polar bears. And second, <clears throat> even if they didn't, I think it would be a mistake to... Uh, It ultimately doesn't matter. A, they have to, because the research we did in the book, I mean, solar solar and wind cause great harm to the natural world, and they also don't actually replace fossil fuels. Right. So they, they end up being a boon for industry and do not in any way help desert tortoises. They don't help salmon. They don't, they don't actually solve the problem they purport to solve. And... My point here is even if they don't believe it and they're trying to sneak in through the back door and they really do care about desert tortoises, it doesn't matter because the practical effect is to harm the natural world. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing on this, wait, the third thing was the most important. No, I forgot it. Uh, oh, the third thing is it actually doesn't matter if they believe it or not, it doesn't matter if they really believe, if they're true believers that solar and wind will save the day. The important thing is, if they didn't exist, capitalism would create them. If they didn't exist, someone else would take their place to say the same thing because they are required for the for the furthering of capitalism. I don't believe, this is a really interesting discussion I love playing around with, which is I don't, for the most part, believe in the great man theory of history. I don't believe, well, I think there's a few examples. Like I think Napoleon, you know, if it would have been somebody else at that time, I don't think they would have done what Napoleon did, but let's leave Napoleon out of it. Right. And I think, you know, if it wouldn't have been Abraham Lincoln being elected in 1860, it would have been somebody else in 1868 or 1872. There would have been, uh, it was a conflict going on between economic sectors and historical forces, and it was going to come about no matter who the names are that we end up remembering 150 years later. Yeah. And I think the same thing is true here that if there weren't spokespeople for, if there weren't people who were willing to make global warming specifically about humans and make it about continuing, it's not even about humans, honestly, though, not at all, that was a complete misstatement, to make it about continuing industrial civilization. So look, there's a problem. The problem is the global warming is disrupting 
there's a possibility, in fact, it's happening, that global warming will disrupt the functioning of our economy. Yes. And that, to me, is trivial compared to the fact that it is disrupting life on the planet. And there are people who have very real concerns about global warming. And if those concerns are allowed to flourish, there may be real people may go, my God, this is killing the planet and may do something drastic. Well, when people recognize there's a problem and it can get shunted into a direction that supports. Okay. Let's back up again. Sorry. I'm being so scattered on this. No, no Um, worries. The something we have to talk about, I've said several times that wind and solar don't, don't actually, replace oil. And I need to talk for a second about Jevons' paradox. And Jevons' paradox is that he Jevons was a, a uh, economist in the 19th century who studied coal and how it was, what would happen? We have increased efficiency in the use of coal. And you would think that you have increased efficiency that would decrease your use of coal because if it takes only half as much coal to heat the boiler, great. Let's pay half as much and we're done. But that's not how it works. What happens is increased efficiency in use leads to increased demand because people find more economic uses for it. And an example I use of this is I live in Northern California and uh, home to the best marijuana in the world. And uh, so you can't live in Northern California and not know growers. And and one of your main expenses, if you're an indoor, it's twice as efficient. So now you can grow, your electric bill's cut in half. And what somebody could do is they could go, well, okay, I'm gonna grow the same amount of marijuana, spend half of that on electricity, and then I'm gonna use the other half to buy land and protect it. But that's it's not what most people would do. Most people would do is, and so you end up actually using more electricity, more pots, more fertilizer, more soil. And that's what happens on the larger scale. A, a way to think about this, and, and Max came up with this, and it blew me away. Which is better for the planet? Cars that get 100 miles per gallon or cars that get one mile per gallon? And when he wrote that, I didn't write that part. And when I read that, the first time he sent it to me, I'm thinking, well, of course it's better for the planets 100 miles per gallon. And he, he walks us through and he says, no, because if cars can only, you wouldn't have any reason to buy a car. So without, with car culture, one, car culture wouldn't exist with one mile per gallon. And a great example of this that, I, that, that was mine that we put in the book from there is... Well, the day that I read that, I had driven five miles to go to a really good taqueria. And I wrote in the book, it cost me, you know, I get, I don't know, 40 miles per gallon. So it cost me 10 miles worth of gas is a quarter of a gallon at four bucks a gallon. So it cost me $1 to drive there, which I'll add a buck to the price of the tacos, no problem. <laughs> but man, if it was a dollar, I mean, if it's 10 gallons to go, that's 40 bucks. Yeah. I'm not going to spend 40 extra dollars on these tacos. So the fact that it was more efficient actually 
led to increased spending. And also there wouldn't be this whole system of roads if we only got one mile per gallon. Right. And so that's a great example of Jevons paradox. And the way this applies to the larger is for thousands and thousands of years, humans used human and non-human labor. And then they also used fire and then they used, they used wood for energy. They, you burn wood for, for energy. That's, that's fine, whatever. And then when they added on coal, it did not decrease the use of wood. And then when they added oil on, that did not decrease the use of coal or wood. And the way they added hydro on, that did not decrease the use of oil, coal, or wood. Every time you have a new energy source, it just adds on. So really... All of this push for wind and solar, <clears throat> they don't decrease fossil fuel use. They don't actually help the planet. What they are, and I'm not talking about the motivations of Lester Brown or any of them. I'm talking about the motivations from a strictly capitalist perspective is they want money in order to add new energy sources because they realize we're basically at peak oil. They want energy sources to increase. All these energy sources are tremendously expensive. They don't want to pay for it. How do you get public money to pay for it? Naomi Klein wrote about this in the shock doctrine. What you do is you present a terrible, terrible set of circumstances to people and then say, you need to let us do this or terrible things will happen. That's the shock doctrine. And that's what's happening with here. They're taking the very real, very scary reality of global warming and using it as an excuse to get, I mean, just a couple of days ago, uh, Biden was saying he wants to give trillions of dollars to, for infrastructure projects associated with, with wind, solar, et cetera. This is a way to just rake in money. And a way to think about this is you get a hundred thousand people walking on the streets of, of New York or Paris or Washington DC. And if you ask them why they're marching, they'll say to save the planet. And if you ask them, what are your specific demands? They'll say, uh, we want uh, subsidies for the wind and solar industries. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's an extraordinary coup to turn a, to turn a movement sp- supposedly about protecting the planet into a lobbying arm of a sector of industrial capitalism. That's just crazy. And it won't even work. I mean, I know for today we're running out of time and – it's, you know, in the book we present, I mean, there's lots more we could go through, and I would love to talk with you again about this. We, we, we talk about solutions, and the solutions we come up with, we use, are allowing forests to come back, <coughs> allowing seagrass spreads to live. They sequester carbon like crazy. Grasslands to recover. Um, it's, it's, I don't remember the numbers, but it's basically if you – if you allowed 80% of the world's grasslands to come back, it would sequester all the carbon that has been released since the start of the industrial age within 15 years. God, and, that's incredible. I mean, that's, that's all that mean. All that means is that, you know, we'd have to convert, not convert. We would have to stop the primary damage and allow it to come back. Yeah. And, I mean, that's the good news is that life wants to live. And the bad news is you have to stop killing it in order for it to live. And 
So our solutions chapter is actually pretty short that it's basically one, stop the primary damage. And two, a lot of places you can help along. Peat bogs um, help, peat bogs uh, sequester, I think more carbon than any other biome. And they are really easy to recover. All you have to do is plug the ditches that you used to drain them in the first place, let the water come back. And once the water comes back, you put in a few of the native plants, then you go to sleep, you know, you're done. Yeah. And nature does the rest of it. And unfortunately, that doesn't get a lot of traction because it doesn't make any money. And it doesn't serve the mega machine. It doesn't. All of these things they're talking about are about increasing energy supply to the industrial system. And there was a great line by George Monbiot 10 years ago or so where he said, that one of his problems with wind and solar is he didn't think they would work for, for brick factories. Of course they won't, but leave that aside. Um, he said, the problem is how do we get the energy we need to run our brick factories? And I love that line because this is like that Naomi Klein line about polar bears and it's really revealing. I'm going to change a couple words and let's see how different it is. Instead of how do we get the energy we need to run our brick factories instead ask, how do the capitalists get the energy they need to run their brick factories? Suddenly, it's not a social issue anymore. Suddenly, it's an issue of those greedy people want to use more energy. Well, I don't want them to use more energy. It's not my brick factory. And we need to recognize that. It's, it's our, I mean, okay, I'm going to sum up all my work and all, all my books in one sentence, which is this way of living won't last. And when it's done, I would prefer that there's more of the world left rather than less. Yeah. That's it. That's it. That's all of it. I could have just done that and not said another word, but I'm not going to do that even now. And, um, and that's, that's the problem here is that again, I mean, I've said this a bunch of times, that the bright greens want to continue this way of life at the expense of the planet. Yeah, that's, um, and, and there, I, I know we're running out of time here, um, but there are, uh, ho hopefully we haven't even gotten to the book at all. We haven't even talked about the book. I, I know it's crazy. <laughs> uh, that's, that, that's my bad. Um, no, it's, it's, it's my fault. You asked me a question about the book and then I talk about, well, you have, a, or something. you have a million talk about bats. Yeah. Well, but it, it, these are all fascinating. I talk, about, I talk about bats complaining about each other for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but I'm, I'm loving it and I'm sure people listening are as well. I mean, cause you, you do go through in the book, like you kind of debunk one by one, the different technologies, like the solar, uh, wind, hydro, um, what about um, EU scientists? Apparently, are, are you know very recently? This is within like the past few days. Apparently, they're about to label nuclear power as being green. Uh, I, w what are your thoughts on on this development? Um, well, I, I assume um, you know nuclear waste and all these things are a problem. <clears throat> Well, relative to say solar and wind, uh, how does nuclear stack up? 
So when I wrote Culture Make Believe, I did a chapter on Bhopal. You know, Bhopal, those poison accidentally released and killed lots of people. And <clears throat> they did not have antidotes available for the poison. And one of the best lines I've ever read by anybody ever was a person from Bhopal saying they should not be allowed to make poisons for which there is no antidote. Mm. And... Um, Did you learn as a child, did your mother or father ever say to you that, or instill in you that you should not create a mess which you cannot clean up? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a terrible idea to create wastes that can be dangerous for a million years or however long. Let's go back to that are you planning on living in place for the next 500 years? And that's one part. Another part is it's an authoritarian technique. It requires military and police for the mining. It requires all of the uh, construction materials. Uh, it requires, we go through this in the preface or introduction or somewhere early in the book. We just, we just miss solar or nuclear pretty quick. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to require this system of protection for a hundred thousand years or for a million years or for however long, how are you going to keep people out of the exclusion zones essentially forever? It's an extraordinarily bad idea. And then also, you know, I went to the Colorado School of Mines. It's a, it's a very conservative, it's an engineering and science school. And it's incredibly conservative. When I went there, it's an energy school is really what it is at this point. And when I went there, I would routinely see bumper stickers around the campus that said about environmentalists, let the bastards freeze in the dark. And I mean, it's, it's it, it would not be too much to say that it is an anti-environmental school. Yeah. And even there, and this is anecdotal because it's just a few physics professors 40 years ago, but even there, my physics professors, they all were pretty much against nuclear on an ERO, EI, energy return on energy invested scale. Because when you take all of the mining into account, the construction, the decommissioning, it doesn't make any energy sense. It's, I mean, the same is true, frankly, for uh, for solar and wind. They don't, they don't make sense on an energy level. And um, You know, it was pretty much accepted in the 70s and 80s, at least among. And again, I was pretty conservative myself back then. And the the and the and School of Mines was incredibly conservative, but it was still pretty much accepted by a lot of my physics professors that the nuclear, the the peaceful part of the nuclear industry was just an add on to the military part, that the primary action was in the military use of, you know, for the creation of nuclear bombs and this was just a propagandistic and b a way to uh something to do with other parts you know like using all of the buffalo sort of thing right and honestly okay that's that's pretty much all i can say about nukes because um i mean it's just so self-evidently stupid self-evidently not good for the natural world that 
I don't understand how anybody who is remotely environmental can think it's, I mean, I can understand the whole solar thing a little bit because, you know, wow, it's, it's not, there's not any smoke coming out of smokestacks. Yeah. And I guess nukes are the same way, but it's the same with all of them. You got to, here's, here's the whole takeaway from Bright Green Lies. And yeah, I still want to do the one where we go and jump into all the chapters specifically, yeah. but the, the big takeaway is you really just have to look at chain of supply that solar panels are not born in the spring and wind turbines don't fall off trees. They require the entire system of mining with everything that entails of transportation with everything that entails of land destruction on the site of disposal afterwards. And it's, they all pretend that it's just magic. Have we talked before about cargo cults? No. Do you know what they are? They're pretty interesting. Okay, a cargo cult is the um, the way they developed is that there were some some I think South Pacific Islanders who were living on their own, living perfectly fine and happy in their own communities, fishing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then some Westerners came in and they brought like cargo ships. They brought containers full of stuff and the local people began to hold on i'm going to look up a definition because i don't want to i don't want to screw us over on this yeah no worries very gonna very quickly gonna look up cargo cult definition uh melanesian islands a system of belief based around the expected arrival of ancestral spirits and ships bringing cargoes of food and other other goods a cargo cult is a millenarian belief system in which adherents perform rituals which they believe will cause a more technologically advanced society to, del to deliver goods. And it was, these cults were first described in Melanesia in the wake of contact with allied military force in the Second World War. And all of civilization is basically a cargo cult. We think wow. if we offer the propitiation, the pro you know, we can say, yeah, you know, they're really, they're so stupid to have thought that. But it's like, what do you think solar panels are? And we think that they magically arrive as opposed to having been created by incredibly toxic industrial means uh, requiring mining all over the planet, et cetera, et cetera. So all we do in the book is go through and track the, uh, the chain of supply and all the materials that went into that solar panel <clears throat> so that uh, you can power up your computer and play Left 4 Dead 2. <clears throat> yeah. Um, well, look. Or I can. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, we, we've done an hour here. Uh, the only other question I wanted to ask, if you have time, was... Yeah, let's uh, do one more question. What, so, uh, th this is kind of just a total curveball question. What, what do you think of Greta Thunberg? So I don't know anything about her personally, obviously right. never matter anything. And I don't know much about her message, so I can't comment on that. So the short answer is I don't think much either way. Yeah. But I have, I have another answer that doesn't have to do with her, but something I find appalling, reprehensible, which is the environmental movement does this. They've done this for at least the last 20 years. They choose a kid 
And then that kid becomes a spokesperson for the environmental movement. Right. And when the kid ages out, they choose another one. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, this like they had, I don't remember her name, but David Suzuki's daughter several years ago, um, they had, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but there was a, there was a kid, an indigenous kid with a Aztec name. Yeah. Uh, he was a big deal for a little while. There was somebody else before David Suzuki's kid. <clears throat> and I find it reprehensible that, and I find it a pure marketing tactic. Um, this is saying, I want to be really clear. I am saying nothing. I am not in any way uh, saying anything bad about David Suzuki's kid or the other one or Greta, Greta Thunberg. I, they, A, it would be, even if I did, not, I don't dislike them at all. Even if I did dislike them, it would be appalling for me to pick on a kid. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, A, and, and again, I want to be really, really clear. I'm not like, wink, wink, I'm not going to criticize her. I, right. yeah, yeah. I really, I am delighted when, when anybody, especially young people, are this dedicated to saving the planet. I am, I am, that makes me so happy. There have been so many times at my talks where I've had like a 15-year-old kid or 18-year-old kid will ask some really, really smart question of me. I mean, how old are you? I'm 26. Yeah, I mean, same deal here. You're way the hell smarter than I was at 26. And that gives me that gives me great, great optimism, joy, hope, all those things. That you're you're asking the questions you are at 26. And it's the same with kids. It's even more when somebody's like 15 and they're asking some really smart question. And what I always do with the kids who are 18 or something, when they ask a question like that or the talk, I'm going to ruin the joke here by saying it on, on live. But the joke I always tell them, which is true, is, my God, you're asking that question. When I was your age, when I was 18, I was still trying to figure out if Canadian bacon really goes with pineapple. <laughs> and, you know, I was still trying to figure out if, if the band's UFO or spirit are better. You know, yeah. it's... So I'm so happy. I'm so happy that she is so dedicated. That makes me really happy. Yeah. Again, throwing that aside, I think it's appalling that she is being. I, I hear what you're saying. Cause it, it, it's, it's the, the part that's strange about it is like when I see some, you know, news article on Forbes where it's like some eight-year-old kid has started a company and he's a young entrepreneur. It's like, okay, well, how much were the parents really involved here? And, you know, some 14 or 15-year-old kid is given talks at the UN. It's like, surely there's a larger apparatus at play here. And it's, it feels strange. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And also, you know, I just, I'm glad that what I had to say between the ages of 15 and 22 is not, it's not a matter of public record. Yes. Um, Cause I mean, maybe they really are super wise and prodigies and, but um I, I don't, there is a reason that 
traditional communities respect elders. Right. Um, and again, I'm not saying that no young person ever has anything to say. Okay, like Joseph Campbell wrote Hero of a Thousand Faces, a bunch of other books, wrote on mythology. And I love the line that he had, which was he spent his 20s learning how to write so that when he got to his 30s and had something to say, he would know how to say it. Hmm. And that's true. I mean, for God's sake, when I was 19, I voted for Ronald Reagan. <laughs> and you know, I mean, thank God he didn't win by one vote or I would have just killed myself. <laughs> um, you know what you're supposed to do when you're nine, when you're 18, 19, 20, you're supposed to be making all sorts of mistakes because you're still kind of stupid. Yeah. Oh, for crying out loud. Here's my favorite one. I did this in my twenties, a fair number of times, early twenties, early twenties, very early twenties. I learned more later. I would like be driving down a country road and I would think it was fun to turn off my headlights. Yeah. That's totally something a 20 year old guy. <laughs> or another great example. I'm driving through a snowstorm. I'm late for an intramural basketball game. How important is that? Right. And so I'm driving through a snowstorm. I got another person in the front seat here, two people in the back seat. And I come up behind somebody who is reasonably driving about 20 miles an hour through this blizzard. Yeah. And I see a car coming and I say to the guy in the front seat, should I go for it <laughs> to pass? Meanwhile, the two people in the back seat are discussing whether one of them is going to run for college office, like, you know, freshman or sophomore president or something. One person had said, should I run for it? And the other person, right when I said, should I go for it? The other person said to him in the back seat, yes, go for it. <laughs> talking to me. So I step on it yeah. and um, everybody in the car except me starts screaming. And we did make it. Obviously, I didn't die. Right. But it's like, that's what you do when you're 20. Yeah. We did make it to the intramural game on time, by the way. There you go. <laughs> which was the important thing. Yeah, of course. My point is just that, yes, there's, again, no disrespect whatsoever to any of these children yeah. or youths. I just, I don't think, okay, if there would have been just one, the first time this happens, like, oh, that's so moving. That's so moving that a kid is speaking out like this and a kid's getting a voice. That's great. And then like three years later, I never heard of that kid again. And there's another one. It's like, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then three years later, there's another one. It's like, okay, wait a second. I think that there is something going on. And the fact that it's a, it's not an individual, it's the pattern that's bugging me. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That makes it seem really uh, manipulative and planned and simply a PR move. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought I'd ask you about that because I, I, thought you'd have an interesting take on it. Um, but we, we've certainly gone over an hour and I don't want to take up any more of your time. But Derek, I, I, you're one of my favorite guests and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. So this was, did you get a haircut? I did, yeah. So I think that's why I didn't recognize you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I cut it real close. Yeah, because I, 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 remember, I remember being interviewed by Duncan. Yes. And I remember it. And then I, I you turn on the, you turn on your camera and it's like, this isn't Duncan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what What did you do with Duncan? I know. I know. Yeah. It's a little different, but um, 
Yeah. I mean, anytime you want to talk, I'm, I'm definitely down. So well, let's, let's do it again. And this time we will both make a solemn vow on <laughs> yes. everything we hold sacred <laughs> that what your questions will be, you'll ask me. Yes. Okay. Tell me what's wrong with solar. Yeah. Tell me what's wrong with wind. Exactly. And then that's your job. No, my job will be to keep you on task. Okay. And your job will be Derek. Don't tell me about birds gossiping. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I will try, but it's, it's fascinating stuff. Uh, well, I will try too, but I, I probably won't succeed. Okay. Well, we'll put in a best effort, but yeah, absolutely. Um, Bright green lies. Uh, you can get it anywhere. Uh, anything else you want to, uh, you know, put out where people can reach you or where people can get the book or watch the movie, etc. Oh, so two things. One is, uh, yeah. Um, you can find out more about the book at brightly brightgreenlies.com brightgreenlies.com. Uh, that's a website put up by there's this, Hey, there we go. She's very young. Um, Julia Barnes. Um, she's 24, I think. And, uh, she made a movie about based on bright green lies or based on the, the same ideas and it's a fabulous movie she's really good this is her second film so maybe i should maybe i should change everything i said about young people because there are some young people who actually are really smart yeah so maybe it's all okay it, exactly i don't know no 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 i'm i'm, I'm really reconsidering a little bit because i don't know it still seems manipulative to me yeah i think we've I, only done it once if we did this every time then if, if we we sort of the the sort of movement to to go the other direction anyway forget that it's yeah. a great movie and the premiere is april 22nd and you can find out about this on brightgreenlies.com watch the trailer too which is really good and then you can also find out more about the book uh my website is derrickjensen.org d-e-r-r-i-c-k-j-e-n-s-e-n.org and um and also i want to say i really like your shirt thank you yeah i got this in nepal so it's you know truly uh, authentic. <laughs> um, in any case, I like it. Thank you. Um, well, anyway, great questions. Thanks. It's always fun. Yes. Always a pleasure. And uh, Derek, take care. Uh, hopefully no, no bears attack. Uh, oh, no bears will attack. There, there you go. This is the first time we've done a podcast where bear has not interrupted midway through, which is, uh, I was waiting for the grizzly or whomever to. to um, there you. were some bears here about ten minutes. They left about ten minutes before you you called. So there you go, just on time. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Derek, for uh, for talking as always, and take care. Thanks. You too. Have a great day. Alrighty. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you to Derek Jensen, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.